My name is Skolk Nietling, and this is the Mechanical Inc. Podcast, a podcast about open source, the open web, sustainability, and those who want to make the web and the world a better place. Hey, Anna, and welcome to the Mechanical Inc. Podcast. Hey, Skolk. Great to be here. Yeah, it's been a while. It's been a while. So um, as I generally do with these um, recordings, I, there's nobody better to introduce you, your, you than yourself. So I'm going to get out of the way and I'm going to let you introduce yourself. Just a couple of things I want to like throw out that you could touch on if, if that makes sense to you is essentially like tell us a little bit about you, um, the work that you do. Then what gets you up in the morning? That's always something that I find curious. And then there was this little thing, like as I, I like to read about the people that I'm going to talk to. So I do some research and some uh, looking around and people's profiles and stuff. And I noticed this interesting thing. And that is that there's quite a few folks on LinkedIn and you're one of them. And then Seth Godin was another one that has this little like waxing gibbous moon next to their profile, their name. And I was curious if that has any specific meaning. So if you want to like touch on that as well as part of your introduction. Okay. Well, thanks for the invitation. It's so, I, this is, I'm a, I'm a little bit of new territory with you and your open source world. And so this is exciting to be combining and, and seeing how different ecosystems intertwine, which they do and they should. And so um, that's fun. So yeah, I'm Anna Smith. I um, am, Let's see, just to begin, so I, I live and work in Iquitos, Peru, which is the largest city in the Peruvian Amazon, um, which is, people love to brag and go on about how it's the largest city in the world, not accessible by car. So you have to get here by boat or by plane. It makes it kind of feel like it's sort of 50 years in the past, and maybe anciently in the past, and certain kind of um, other topics in terms of like, traditional cultures, which we're surrounded by. But um, yeah, so I live and work here. I've lived and worked in Peru for almost seven years. And I'm from the US, but I've really kind of been able to create this cool, interesting life here. And that's a big part of what gets me up in the morning. Um, so my background, I spent, I have a long history working in global health, in women's health and sexual health. Um, I worked in the States and live in the States until I was 33, doing a lot of focus on high need community work, uh, STD prevention, sexual education, high risk pregnancy clinic stuff. I moved to Peru in my early 30s and switched tracks into sort of the internationalism life mode. Um, and now I do a whole lot of different kinds of things, uh, a combination of sort of a really active creative life, which I can talk more about, which is a huge part of what gets me up each day. And this incredible, ongoing, delicious contribution that we get to have by being alive and having this will and interest in engaging in community. And so you asked about the, about the uh, waxing gibbous moon, which is a symbol for the carbon almanac, which, um, and, and uh, just to kind of clarify, so that's, that icon refers to the stage of the moon before the moon becomes full. So it's, it's coming into its own, it's actually in, in its stage, it's, it's between coming into it and being in its full development. It's, it's, it's growing. 
And that's the significance of the icon. And, and that's a big part of the kind of symbol of a tribe of the community, which has been a pretty much a huge, a plugged in network for me and a connecting force for me in my life um, in many different ways, which we can talk about community, but that's definitely a big part of what gets me up in the morning. Yeah, that's amazing. So um, what is it like? So I think what brought, I mean, let's maybe dig into it from, from this point of, point of view, like what brought you to Peru specifically? Is it the the forest um, or is it that plus some other things? And how do you end up in a city that's so, um, as you said, it's not accessible by car, like you have to take a boat or a plane. Um, how did you end up specifically there? Of all the places, of all of this big world we live in, why am I here? It's, I think it's, um, you can hear this, this, it's thundering outside, but I think for me, there's maybe just certain people, I think we all kind of have this, these sort of aspects of ourselves or our multiple kind of elements of personality where there's different kinds of needs we want to get met in life at once, right? We have desires for community and connection. We have desires for intimacy. We have desires for, for home and stability. We have desires for newness and learning. And, and to me, Peru, and I think a lot of people throughout time have seen Peru as this you know, treasure to be discovered, this promised land of ancient wisdom and the place to get healing. It's still very popular among tourism for that. And for me, the Dorana Peru was really more about having a really rich and cool life. I, I knew I could do really great global health work here, and I knew I could have this rich bilingual life. Peru is home to an incredible number of different ecosystems, microclimates. And so I knew I could have a huge amount of variety living here. And, and I think not to mention that I just really connect with a lot of aspects of Latin American culture, in particular warmth and the, and the emphasis outside of the individual and more on the collective, on the community, which is a, basically the life force of social life here is the, is, the, is the collective. So all those reasons drew me down here. I knew I could have a really great quality of life. I think and a lot of people who do international development work, you know, you, there's a certain level of okay, you're, you're living in a country that you're, you're not from, you're very intentionally in this specific place, you know, hopefully you have a combination of factors that nourish you. And I think that's, for me, a big part of why here, Aquinas in particular, people say this about the Amazon region, which includes Colombia and Brazil too, um, is it's particularly warm. It's a particularly warm population. People are, I don't know, there's a, a kind of essential a sense of cultural openness and receptivity that... I find unique than other parts of the world. Um, and it, I find it really nourishing, a sense of home base too. And I think that's a big part of why I'm here. The more I read about, um, about you and the work you do and the interests you have and things you write about and talk about and that kind of thing, it like all circles around a couple of topics, for me anyway. Um, and so some of those topics that I've picked up on is the planet. And then empathy and respect, which I think you've just mentioned. And then living a creative life, just in general. Um, so I wonder, I think you've touched on this a little bit, but maybe we can dig even a little bit deeper into that. Um, why do you feel drawn to those topics? And then why are they important now, where we are 
in the history of the planet and civilization in general? Such a great and thoughtful question. Um, I think I think we've seen what happens when all when we focus exclusively on ourselves. You know, I think the history of sort of Western civilization in particular on extraction, on a type of capitalism that has a very short-term sight has brought us to a lot of points that we're currently at. And I think I think there's there's reasons why those things have happened. I'm not discounting that those aren't valid and haven't offered certain kinds of progress. Um, but I think we're also feeling the emptiness and the loss and the, dis the distancing that comes with that. And I think it's at a point now where it's so strong that we are kind of forced to reconcile and reckon with, with what we're losing by exclusively focusing on that. And, and I don't mean that just in terms of eco ecology, which is obviously a crisis, but like socially too, you know, what we're, and what is the aspect of our society that does not nourish the inner life? You know, when everything we're putting on social media and Instagram, so I, you know, I like avoid a lot of these things because there's other aspects of self that go missing. And so I think, I think we've just reached a point in human history where we have enough access to each other and the tools to, I think the pandemic was really helpful in, in, in the massive pause that we needed to take. Uh, sorry, my window is rattling, crazy. It was really windy. Um, and so I think that was a really important part of our ability to sit with things. And I think just also like our ability to be connected in new ways facilitates that openness. Um, I think a lot of people too are sort of recognizing that, that wealth comes in the collective rather than just in the individual and in the specific. So we, we are actually nourished, not by being alone, but by our connections to each other and this whole crisis of loneliness that we're seeing, you know, like I think that's a force, you know, or the fact that there's so many more, many more natural disasters, we're forced to connect with each other and support each other. You know, the fact that we feel worse after being on social media and we feel more alone is maybe nudging us to consider that's not really serving it and what else. So I think, several merging forces have come together. Um, and obviously like the urgency around having a stable future, I think is um, coinciding with that, you know, remarkably at the same time, it feels like a really remarkable time to be alive, to be in the middle of this. Um, and it requires a different set of skills as a person that I don't think you know, I can definitely say my grandmother wouldn't have probably needed to develop in her life. She probably thought it might have been richer for it, but it wasn't necessary in the same way. And I think our ability to collaborate and to extend, um, which is a big part of my connection with Seth's work and my friendship with him, and, you know, all the, and really the whole community, all of us, you included, like our connection to each other is, is offers such nourishment in our lives especially in digital spaces with so much more time spent working from home. I think these things have all conspired. Um, and, I, and, I, and I think what's exciting too, honestly, about it is you, it could have gotten differently. It could have felt like, oh, I'm just at home, I'm alone, and I kind of feel worse. And if I'm at home alone, I'm connected to you and this amazing podcast you do, like that offers me a different experience. And you get to feel that and experience that, and then that leads you down a new path. Um, that's kind of where I'm at with it. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, 
I, a lot of what you said resonates with me. And at the same time, <clears throat> I, I, I look at the world and I look at what's happening around me, like in South Africa specifically. And, um, I'm not exactly sure how to put this, but I do sense that we are we are starting to to realize that we can't go at, at this alone. Like the future success, the future, just our ability to to have some kind of hope and dream and believe that there is a tomorrow um, that's worth living for does depend on more than just me, more than just, you know, each individual, it is coming together. That's, that's what makes it worthwhile. But, but at the same time, it, it feels like there is so much anger in the world. Um, you know, if, if I look around me, I, I see that on people's faces, I see that um, in interactions you have, it seems like people have a very, very short fuse. Um, so I, I don't know, do you think that maybe we have this, is it that we have this pull towards, you know, almost like almost like a pull towards the kind of life that you've kind of set up for yourself, where you're closer to nature, closer to a community that is open and nourishing. So we, we're kind of feeling the pull towards that, but then this capitalist, like, got to do this is, has to have been done like two weeks ago you know this rush towards something and we're not always even sure what that is um could it be that this pull is becoming so strong that we we feel pulled in two different directions and we're sitting in the middle and we're feeling frustrated and we don't know how can i free myself you know in a sense from this pull and move towards the thing that i really want to do which is um, live a more creative life, live a, full, a more meaningful life, live a life that is closer to nature. Um, do you think that, that that is maybe something that that is having this side effect? Yeah, I think you put it beautifully. I do think there's that. I mean, I think we've been, we've grown up in culture. We've grown up, right, as fish or in water. We've grown up within certain structures and capitalistic systems and, and, and extractive systems and where the more than human world is not recognized, is not valued, you know, it's, uh, you know, used only. And I think that there is that inner turmoil that comes, I think, and I think, because I think there's a part of us that deeply longs for the elements that are beyond that, that have to do with, you said, the more, that are way beyond me, that are more than me, that really, I, 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 am, a, I am a part of it, and you are a part of it, but they're not us exclusively. And that getting off of the I to the we, the me to the me, the we to the me is like such a huge part of this transformation. And I think that's painful for people. Like, I, I think that there's a, a surrender of the ego that we weren't, we weren't taught how to do, how to let that go. And I think that's, that's hurts, you know, it's scary when, when this essential structures of what we thought meant to be successful you know, which meant I'm going to promote myself. I'm going to advance in this business. I'm going to make this money. I'm going to have, I am going to this Western notion, which not everybody in the world shares, right? That's a one specific construct. But, and when that slowly starts to, to fade or, or slow down, I think that's disorienting, you know? And what you need is, a, is a, a, something else that feels strong, you know, stable and, and that 
in the same way that like, you know, when I was learning and overcoming or struggling with this perfectionism and, and I had to find a new identity that worked out of, I'm not wrong because I don't know what I am is actually an active learner. And that's my new identity that I shifted to versus being, I don't know what I am, you know? And I think what I hope for people and what I hope, I feel like you're involved with and a lot of us are involved with is helping people shift that identity to the meaning of not just taking all of it for myself, but for thinking of in, in the collective. And I think, but I do think that's a painful process. And I think that that's, there's a lot of grief in letting go of old systems. You know, I think the status quo exists so strongly because it's, it's it works in certain ways. It helps us feel secure in certain ways. And, and the emotional labor of letting a lot of that go is, is labor, it hurts. So I, I don't know, I, I want to honor that own those processes. And I think for a lot of people in particular, I mean, I, at least where I live, like I look at the way for example, like for what a hempo, where the way kids are in school here, like if, in how much my Peruvian friends struggle to speak to me in English. They are so afraid, despite years of friendship, a lot of trust to make a mistake. And how difficult that wiring, how deep that wiring is, and then they cannot say a single incorrect phrase to me in English. Here I am, we're, ha we're having drinks. It's casual. And that's still so programmed in there that we can't engage in that way. And I wonder how long those things take to change. You know, like how much trust? You know, how much time? Um, some people, I just feel like, really struggle with that. I don't know. But I think there's just a lot of space for, for, for patience and grace, too, like, with it. Because I think there's no other way it's going to work. No amount of yelling at yourself is going to make move that faster. You know? I know you focus on mental health, too. That's a big, big topic, right? So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's massive. That's massive. And I think um, I think a lot of this, uh, like you said, this whole idea of, um, I mean, I, I guess this this plays into the whole influencer culture where there's this one individual that everybody looks to for, you know, guidance and answers and stuff like that. But then, you know, behind the camera, their life is not the life that they they put put forward on on these social media channels. Um, that's why I appreciate it when some of these people do uh, zoom out in a sense so that you can see, you know, the, the little space you see on the camera normally is very intentionally structured to look a certain way. But if you just zoom out a little, it's like it's a mess <laughs> around it, like like everybody else's homes or spaces. Um, because I think, you know, a lot of people get really down on themselves because they haven't achieved what they've what it seems like the world is telling them they should have achieved by a certain age or, you know, I don't know. I mean, I struggle with these things sometimes. Um, so much of our worth is connected to our careers sometimes or, uh, you know, where you live or what you have or don't have for that matter. Learning, that's a big change. That's a big process. And, and no amount of like being angry with yourself or other people will make that easier. You know, I think there's a, there, there just has to be a different kind of way it's approached. Even if you grew up in a perfectionistic family and they told you you should just be able to do all of it perfectly and you can't, you're like, well, so then what do I do? You know, how do I learn this as an adult, you know? No, for sure. I mean, yeah, your identity is oftentimes very closely bound to that. And so when that goes away, 
aspects of your identity goes away and that that stuff that's that ego thing that you, that that you mentioned where there's a bit, uh, kind of breakdown of the ego and that you know that is from a like mental health perspective that is that is a hard thing to to deal with that's a hard thing to accept yeah i mean and i'm i'm not saying that there aren't things that sometimes have to be taken from people like i think sometimes power has to be reached out and grabbed when it isn't voluntarily given you know, but still, and that's still the, it's, it's still, it's still a hard process, you know. Yeah, no, for sure. No, it definitely is. It is. Um, so, um, one of the nonprofits that's listed on your LinkedIn bio is called Nonprofit Ventures. Um, I've never heard of them before, but I'm curious because I had a look at their website and they talk about this um, idea called post-growth entrepreneurship or the post-growth economy. Um, I'd love if you can dig into that a little bit and just explain what that is all about and what do nonprofit ventures do? Yeah, that's a great, I'm happy to talk about them. So um, as a relative newbie to, the, to that world myself, so post-growth economics is basically the idea that we, um, it's kind of better and not necessarily bigger you know, um, you can do, you can have thriving without endless amounts of growth. Um, that there's sort of people's needs versus corporate greed. You kind of, we have this collective well-being, which does have to exist within limits, right? Um, but the focus should be not necessarily on the straight line up of endless growth, endless consumerism, which does not work, but to be, to do it is more focused on thriving. Um, and sort of it's connected to the idea of data and economics, where there is that space in between the ecological limits of the planet and the social needs of humanity in a more than human world, and we can find ourselves within that specific, that specific space. So post-growth, the post-growth um, entrepreneurship incubator, which is what I completed this year, it was completed with a woman named Melanie Ryback who is a pioneer and a hero, and she created um, Radically Open Security. So um, yeah, so basically the idea behind her business and many others in this post-growth kind of model is that they're non-extractive models. Um, they're post-capitalistic models. So the income that's, so just to briefly explain, that means that like when you have the lemonade stand as a little kid, and the amount of money that you get at the end of that, you know, the, uh, that actually either goes back into the company like, that's reinvested in the social good of the company, that's one option, or another is that it just is given away to foundations or to charities. But that, that's not, people don't get rich. I mean, they have people, what people are allotted is amounts to live well, to live, you know, fairly um, more than that abundantly, but not necessarily exponentially, um, you know too much. And so the idea would be to be creating businesses that have those kinds of models. Um, and there's a lot of different kinds of, you know, that often requires legal entities in terms of how businesses are structured, who are the owners of businesses, how can businesses be sold, um, that kind of thing. And so post-growth is, is an kind of an interesting conversation regarding how to create economic structures that within the living viability of our, you know, like a, of, a, of a livable planet, but are still would be venturing into new, new types of business, 
new territories. And I think, um, and kind of what, what it would be contrasted against is a Silicon Valley model, um, which ends up often being really bad for founders and kind of a losing game a lot of times, like, you know, and so as an alternative to that. Yeah, it makes me, uh, makes me think maybe I haven't heard it uh, using this exact terms that you've just used, but I spoke to a friend of mine some times ago that lives in Colorado, and he mentioned about this idea of a a business that is not owned by any one person, but it's owned by everyone. So, like every nobody works at the company, and nobody outright owns the company either. It's collectively owned by everybody. So the success or failure rests on everybody's shoulders. You know, if this thing succeeds, everybody succeeds together. If it fails, everyone fails. So everybody kind of shares that responsibility, which is a really interesting model. And then I think um, I think it's the the founder of, is it Patagonia, the clothing line, I think, who essentially gave away everything. Like he walked away from the company and gave away everything um, to fight climate change, which is just like, wow. Uh, he's like, I have enough. I have a place to live. I don't need all this um, money. Here it is. Use it to to fight climate change. I think that that was really inspiring when I heard that. I guess the question too is, you know, what you know, what is the at what point when do humans thrive? You know, when when is it enough for us to have the full level of our thriving, our human capital potential realized? And at what point, like, is it sort of is it too much? We get we get into a territory of, and I'm not suggesting like I, I've been thinking about this a lot. This whole question about more and less and better, you know, and I don't think selling people on the idea of less of something is probably going to get us very far, right? But the idea of thinking about better or more of a more of a better option, um, I think probably makes a greater selling point. Um, and so. Yeah, it, this is, um, there are other, there, you know, post growth is not the only option, but it's one that's really resonated for me. And I'm, I'm currently um, developing a business concept. And then I did it in the business incubator using the post growth structure. Um, and so, kind of my personal desire in coming from the global health world and public health world was to not spend the rest of my life, like so many people would be groaning and rolling their eyes and agreeing with me, looking for grants and funding, but wanting to find using business actually as a tool for activism and social change, which is, a, I think, a pretty revolutionary concept um, and full of potential. Yeah, no, for sure. I think the open source world is struggling with that at the moment as well, um, where I think the underlying concepts are sound and good. But I think the th but but the thing that went wrong is where the expectations is just m misaligned, um, where you are a corporate company who makes literally millions or billions of dollars, and almost everything that you have is built on top of open source, and then you have a certain expectation of people that are maintaining the software freely. Um, whether it be individuals or communities of people, um, you place an expectation on them as if you're, you're paying for that. 
but you're not. And you're not even contributing back to it by improving it through documentation, code, design, whatever the, the, the thing might be. And now that a lot of these maintainers are saying, you know what, I can't do this anymore. I'm burning out. I need to find a way to make this sustainable for myself. And one of the ways to do that is to start asking money for for the work I do, to start finding a way to build a business model around this open project or this open source framework or whatever it is that I'm building. And people are very like unsure how, how to deal with this. Um, people are exploring different licensing models and some are more successful than others. Some just, and some of them I will say is going too far to the other side again. We have to watch that we don't just swing the pendulum all the way from the one to the other side that we kind of find this happy middle. Um, so, I, so yeah, the open source world is definitely struggling with this as well um, and trying to find find that happy middle. And we're not there yet by any stretch of the imagination. For a lot of people too, there's a lot of hesitation because how, you know, the idea, especially like, I don't know, it's coming from the US, like if I don't, have a certain amount of money, I've set apart for my life. And I understand this argument and I respect this concern enormously. If I don't, if I don't, if I don't extract from my own business, if I don't extract from this open source code thing that I use as a platform and I don't make money, how am I going to retire? How am I going to have money for the future? How am I going to be sure about certain things? And those are all really valid concerns. But I do think there's a huge amount of room in there for especially frankly among certain countries that have more socialized healthcare and things that there are better social structures in place in which people can rely on things um, to set it up differently. So um, yeah, I, I respect that. Yeah, that, that's a big, that's a big problem. I think the, the fact that some of this was um, kind of opened up and made more visible during COVID, as you've mentioned, um, because people have realized how closely tied their ability to just survive is to their employment at a specific uh, company. When you lose that, you don't only lose your paycheck, but you lose um, your pension, you lose your medical aid. Um, and, you know, you have a family that relies on you being able to, to take care of them. And also you might have a, uh, a partner, you might have children or anything like this that have um, health issues that that is expensive to take care of and if you've relied on this one entity to fund all of this when that goes away you find out how um uh, unpredictable your life actually is and how on a on a like knife's edge you're walking constantly where you were thinking that you were very safe and that in itself is a struggle and that's why i think in in countries where um where the government can actually take and can and do take care of their citizens. Um, it does open up some opportunities for you to be a little bit more, be freer in a sense. I know for me in South Africa, we don't have a, like the government system is very broken at the moment. And so you are heavily dependent on yourself and your financial situation to be able to take care of yourself and your family and your home and all these kinds of things. And that places a massive burden on yourself um, because now often more often than not, you're not making money to live a lavish life or, you know, go out to restaurants and go on holidays and all these things. You're making money to be able to put food on the table, be able to go to a decent doctor and hospital if 
that the need arises and have a a possibility of potentially at some point saying, you know what, I don't have to work this hard anymore. I can kind of take it easier and you have a kind of pension and that kind of stuff. You're, that's your responsibility. You have to take care of that. And it's not cheap. It's expensive. It's very expensive. And we see that, I mean, that's so that's true, right? What, what you're saying in South Africa, I mean, that's true all throughout the world. I and mean, that's true even in the instrument in the U.S. being as, you know, GDP being what it is, but it's still true. People cannot rely on social systems to not bankrupt them if they get sick. You know, I mean, it's, it's better than it was in certain ways, but it's still not, at least where I live here in the Loretto state of Peru, the Amazonian state of Peru, like people do not have, they don't, they can't trust in basic systems even related to water or electricity, right, to be able to function. So everything relies not, but 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 this is one of the, the, the points of teaching it. People shouldn't have had to get to this point to rely on it. There is some beauty in the structure itself, but the mechanism and the poverty that's required it is atrocious. It does. It is interesting though, because what ends up happening is that the communities themselves become the lifeblood of being able to survive or not. If you don't participate in the community, you don't survive. Versus, you know, in the states or you know, in other parts of the world, it's like you can choose whether or not to do it, you know, because there's a certain level of economic options, whereas here that means survival. Family, if you don't participate in these structures, you don't survive. And so um, there's a different level of option given, um, but but the mechanisms I think still often work the same um, in terms of the way people rely on each other and that kind of the structure of that network itself. So being from the U.S. and living in a place like this gives me enormous perspective. And I think it um, makes me a lot more critical of, of, I mean, really of both sides. I'm not saying one is, I have one specific kind of opinion or another, but I think it, it, it's humbling to live biculturally or cross-culturally. Um, it opens me up and there's a huge amount of gray inner territory in my own life that I don't think I would have experienced had I not, you know, like that gray area, like that sort of unknown textured zone where you're like, oh, this is, um, I think, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of relevant conversations to be having and there isn't one. Um, and I think when I look at like, you know, the way a lot of like in the US, you know, reporting or news happens, it just, it's so often lacking any level of perspective of what it would be like in any other part of the world. And I find that really bothersome. I, I, I feel like it's, it's feel very egocentric. It's like the only country that we're, that we're interested in is this one. And I think that comes maybe from being an expat and probably a lot of people who live in other places, you know, that you have that, you get that perspective. And many of them without having chosen to live there, they had to leave, right? So that's part of it too. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. I've, I've seen that quite a bit um, where people have actually called that out. Um, where something would happen somewhere else in the world and there'd be very, very little coverage about that and then something happens in certain parts of the world and it's, it's you know, the biggest news story of the week and of the day kind of thing. And it's like, that, it's an interesting balance that we have there. Um, I want to touch on community quite a bit because you've brought that up quite a lot. But before we, we move on to that, I do want to talk about two, I'm going to call them projects um, that I know you're involved with that are, I think closely aligned with with one another, um, and so the one is called the Earth Work Collective, 
where you are a council member. And then the other is the Carbon Almanac, where you are a contributor. Um, and I've mentioned Seth Godin at the top of uh, the conversation. And this is something that I learned from the Akimbo podcast. Uh, that is Seth, Go Seth Godin's podcast. I learned about it there. And when I first heard about it and I had a quick look, I thought, oh, it's a book. And then I was like, okay, that's cool. I'm interested in, in reading reading the book. But then the more I've heard from people like yourself and um, Saurabh and some other folks, I was like, wait a minute, it's more than a book. And so I'm curious if maybe you want to just like start from Earthwork Collective and like what you're doing there, what you're doing as a council member there, and then maybe circling around to the Carbon Albanac. I kind of want to invert them because one led to the other. So I could like start with the Carbon Almanac that led to the creation of Earthwork. So the Carbon Almanac is basically, uh, was a, is, is and was a collective of people who believe that it is not too late to, to solve climate change. Um, and, and when I say that, I'm not speaking in super literal terms. I'm talking about the sense of collective ability to take action and the fact that there's a lot that can be done um, right now and that needs to continue to be done today and going forward. Um, so it's rooted in the idea that by talking about climate change, we change the culture and in changing the culture, we can affront incredibly enormous, complicated, systematic global problems. So by talking, we change the culture and in changing the culture, we can affront problems. And, and how do people talk? Well, when they know enough to talk about something, when they have some level of a small amount of information, when I took a very essential knitting class and got the basics of knitting, I could just begin to talk about knitting a little bit. You know, I had enough information just to do something, to, say, to feel like I'm not a complete idiot talking about it. You know, it's something to work with. And the idea behind the almanac is just was to, is, is and was to provide a, a, a platform of factual information in which people can begin to talk about climate change. So what is carbon in the atmosphere? You know, what is biodiversity? Why is that so important? Um, what is, you know, what, what are the ways in which, um, like the ocean currents, you know, are, are how, how, how are those connected in terms of the way heat is distributed throughout the planet? How do the ice caps work? What's the ozone? How does that factor in? All these kinds of things that, uh, unless, until you understand kind of the basic carbon cycle and the way the carbon is sequestered in relation to the atmosphere, it's kind of hard to understand other things. It's actually fairly simple to understand. It's not a super specific, you know, difficult concept, but it requires a level, I mean, frankly, like kids' book level understanding. So when I was first learning about this, I actually read the Carbon Almanac for kids first, which is, by the way, a great resource for anybody who wants to talk about climate change with kids in a non-scary way. And really, as an adult, learn a huge amount, which is a huge place to begin. I think so often we need a good way to begin. And I think when I say kindergarten level, I don't mean it like, I mean like the essential building blocks of colors and numbers, like what is the language we use to start? Um, and so the Almanac was, is basically that collection, a bunch of people who shares who share that attitude. And there's a whole collection of resources based around that concept, making a sharing accessible information to generate conversations. So the book has been enormously successful. Um, you know, it's become a bestseller in multiple languages, including in Mandarin, Chinese, and it's, um, 
the idea being that um, yeah, people having such accessible information would be able to start. And even in the book itself, which um, there's, there's our, the first section is called Climate Change for Rookies. So just for people who need want maybe one or two pages or a handful of pages, just to begin to know a little bit more and say, okay, I kind of understand how this sort of system is working. What is carbon? You know, what, why does that matter? Um, that kind of thing. Um, and so the, so the, the carbon almanac, yeah, is it was a huge and continues to be a hugely successful experiment in a collaboration. Um, in, in, in that literally it would not have worked had it had an individualistic focus and, and being part of it was so helpful in that I think we need models as humans to truly learn things and unless you really witness it and feel it and experience it you don't necessarily believe it's possible but then when you're involved in these amazing communities online you see the, the, the diversity of what can come out of it and the reciprocity and the symbiotic relationships that take place you walk away thinking okay that's completely a game changer and that's been mine and many of our experiences with it so in the all carbon almanac network what's called there is a whole selection of podcasts there's podcasts for kids there's podcasts for adults there's um, board games and kids books there's the actual book itself um uh there let's see and then there's um, YouTube videos. Um, and really what there is and there is ongoing is an ongoing group of people with whom people can connect with who, who believe this as well. And I think the specific, if you have an idea about the future or possibility for, for your community, for your family, for, for your species of human beings, that it's possible that in the future we can have a livable planet and a good good shared life together. You need people around you with that same attitude to continue that. Otherwise, it's you're going to burn out. It's too tiring. It's too hard. And I think maybe more than anything else is is the community of people who share that attitude, especially in response to so many events going on, so many fires, so much flooding, so many storms, so many scary, scary things that are causing a lot of damage and, and really hurting a lot, you know, that inner core has to stay intact. Otherwise, I don't think we function. I don't, I don't think as species, and I think it's the, going back to your earlier question, we have to have that core in order to, I think, to continue. Um, and so, that's the Carbon Almanac. Um, I was involved and led and continue to lead the creation of the Carbon Almanac, Carbon Almanac in Spanish. Um, and the quick, the history on that is pretty interesting. We tried, the book was purchased, you know, in multiple different languages by country-based publishing houses to publish in a language. And you buy the rights from the, the big publisher in New York, from um, I think a Random House. And we couldn't find anybody who wanted to publish it. And we struggled, the struggle, and, and I was working with staff, and, and we just couldn't seem to find anybody, even though there's a half a billion Spanish speakers in the world, and it was mind-boggling. And so what we did, using the same collective, the same hive, is we actually bought our own rights to the book um, to publish it for free as a PDF. And so uh, that happened. And the book is now available for free online in Spanish, um, which we're going to get going. We want to get make it viral, get people get it, get it on as many people's WhatsApps, and it's available for free now. It's 
a wonderful resource. So people can go on their website and download it. Um, but that's what we did. So there was there was incredibly generous graphic designers and folks from all in Spanish speaking world who revised the entire thing and revamped the entire book. Again, I, I could have never done that on my own. I was I was astonished at what was possible. So it felt like a miracle, honestly, and continues to. Um, okay, so just to connect that with the Earthwork Collective, so Earthwork Collective came as came as a, a group of people who were volunteers, uh, many of whom still are with the Carpet Almanac, decided to kind of create their own um, entity to basically find people, organizations, um, government agencies and businesses who want to take a more climate-friendly approach on things, who want to develop climate-friendly policies, local governments, who want to actually implement things like ESGs or understand what they are. Um, and there, so the, in Earthwork Collective, there's literally a collective from people with different skills. There are illustrators, there's photographers, there's designers um, who be working with specific clients to help them make you know, move towards a more climate friendly um, plan. Um, and so, yeah, they do a lot of focus on facilitation, um, using different frameworks, a lot related to climate resiliency. Um, and a lot of what I love about these both these organizations is it's taking something that is just too incredibly overwhelming and scary to possibly comprehend. It's, it's mind-altering. It's too hard. It's too much. And taking it, and what can you put inside your mouth to start chewing? You know, what is possible to actually be digested versus me trying to think about floods in other parts of the world? Are you people trying to think about the Amazon? You know, it's like, too much. So what are the pieces I can chew and swallow? And I think that's what this has done exceptionally well. It's, it's really kind of climate literacy uh, as a way of generating culture change. And they both, they both do that really nicely. My, a lot of my work has an intercultural focus. So um, kind of thinking about intercultural conversations, um, discourses, ways of, of sort of thinking about different kinds of Language, you know, incorporating different kinds of languages. Um, I have a lot of interest in design thinking and marketing, and so offering offering the perspective that comes from from having spent seven years working in a completely different environment and how that helps affect using an empathy based perspective and bringing marketing into work. That's a lot of what I'm offering on the council. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I mean, wow. There's a lot there. Um, there's a lot so there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, so the Carbon Almanac is essentially an ecosystem of people, communities and things that all it's it's a very Seth thing. This idea of yes. <laughs> Yeah, this idea of like we have to talk about this thing constantly so that we can change the culture. That is a very Seth thing that I've picked up. Um, and it makes 100% sense. Like, I mean, how do you change anything? You have to change the culture. You have to change how people think about things. Um, that's why sometimes uh, when a lot of people are like very gung-ho about um, planet B, you know, going to Mars, it's like these things are interesting and they are worthy of exploration. But I think we shouldn't lose focus on what we have right here. Um, 
And I think it's, you know, late start to realize about all the beauty that surrounds us and how it's going away slowly and actually not as slowly as we think. There's so we have lost so much already um, in terms of biodiversity, as, as you've mentioned, like um, plants, uh, animals, just uh, environments that is completely changed. Um, so I think we shouldn't we shouldn't lose lose focus on that and the way you do that is by changing culture so that people think about these things differently it's not like it's a place where you go f on holiday you know it's when you go on holiday you go to this place where there's nature and all these things but you know day to day it's not important it's like it's it's always important um but the other thing that was interesting to me is the word scary came up quite a couple of times I think scary from two perspectives. The first thing, and I wasn't aware of this, is that there's a children's version of the Carbon Almanac. Like, how 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 does that go about talking to kids about this? Because I know, like, having children that's not really children anymore. I mean, the youngest is 17 and then 20 and 25. But it's a scary topic. It's something that's top of mind for them all the time. And it's 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 scary to think, when I, for them, when they are 40 years old, what's going to be left if we don't, if, you know, if, if they look at the world, they like, we don't see this planet still being around 10 years from now, never mind 20 years from now. How do you, how do you talk to kids about this in a way that doesn't freak them out entirely? Yeah, it's such a huge topic. And I, uh, I, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that they still, have important voices in this, that they're not zero actors in the system. Some of the most, some of the most innovative things that are happening right now are, to me, things that inspire me the most are the climate litigation with kids going on. Um, yeah, it's my future. I'm that age. Like, that's relevant to me. It's hard to deny that in a courtroom, you know, even though like there's, there's they have they've had mixed results, but I feel like the trend is leaning a trend is good you know getting us and so i also just think it forces us to think about it differently versus the perspective of an adult as a kid so i think a lot of it has to do with having agency uh having a role finding reasonable goldilocks style actions that can be taken that feel doable um not you know, finding your own discourse as a family and people being able to really talk about some of the fears around it and emotions around it too as being things that are, are welcome to discuss. I think offering kids space on, on how they feel about it, how they're able to engage on it and reflecting and, and appreciating what actions they've already taken as a, as a point of gratitude, I know is an important tool for adults and for kids. Um, I think also just for all of us, having a basic comprehension of, 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 of the basic platform of, of what it is helps us. You know, when, you, when you're given basic language to have a conversation, we're able to actually begin the conversation. And so the Carbon Almanac for Kids is a really nice job of just of, of kids who can do science experiments at home, understanding what the greenhouse effect is. You know, what happens to the butter when you put a glass um bowl over it you know how quickly how, how how much faster is it going to melt you know with the sun on it you know those kinds of hands-on experiments i think are a really helpful tool and because science experiments are, are fun and important but 
those kinds of things. I think, um, but I would say for, in my experience, having a nice tool that people can really read together and share together that would generate a sense of confidence. If I comprehend this more now, I feel like I am not just hearing about the scary news, but I'm also hearing about, I also understand a little more how the situation works. And I understand that my role is valuable in this. Um, anytime people are reminded of their right or encouraged to use their agency, it's, it, it helps us with our manage our emotions. It helps us with our outlook. There's, it's not all one way. Um, yeah, and then, and then, then there's things like the, 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 we created a board game, which is pretty fun. So the more that it can also be incorporated into regular conversations rather than just a one time and done thing. Oh, hey, today it's really hot. How are you feeling about that? You know, hey, the, you know, this, uh, that the aspect of incorporating the smaller pieces into it each day, I think also breaks it in out of the scary into the, into the sort of the lived real mm-hmm. and daily. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And maybe, and maybe that makes it less overwhelming. Yeah, I know for sure. Yeah, I think it, it's it's the thing that you have to talk about it because it is ever present, and pretending that it that it's not it doesn't help the situation at all. Um, I think I think that that comes from I for most of my life I, I avoided conflict by any means that I possibly could, and uh, about three or four years ago. Um, I did this MBSR course, uh, Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction. And one of the things that I was taught in there is that, in fact, avoiding conflict does more harm than addressing the conflict. And I think that opened my eyes to a lot of other areas in our lives where avoiding a situation actually makes it worse than addressing it. And I think this is potentially one of those where it's better to be open about it and talk about it and then in so doing maybe make it a little less frightening because we tend to be scared of things we don't know and so if we talk about something it becomes known and therefore it loses some of that fear so for every topic that you feel like you don't know enough about and and, and, and you feel fear about if if you increase in that you know even by 10 percent or 15 percent on it you know, if you listen to, you read one short article, listen to a short audio piece or something on it, what what, what does that do? I, I think it's also really hard for kids to, to feel bad about it when the adults around them also haven't done some of the, the their own, getting their own information um, or their own openness to the information. This is a nice segue into one of the topics we wanted to talk about, and that is AI. I, I think, you know, AI is one of those things at the moment that is scary to a lot of people and scary because we don't know and it's even scarier when you hear the people who are the innovators in the space saying we don't actually actually know what the heck's going on here it's exciting and it's interesting and it's weird and but we don't actually know how this works so i'm i wonder like to jump from one scary topic to a potentially another scary topic um what are you what are your thoughts just about ai i for me um i have very mixed emotions about it um but i am curious what role it can play in large data analysis and i think one of the areas where it could potentially be 
powerful is when it comes to climate, because there's so much data that it could potentially crunch and it could potentially find patterns and find connections. Yeah, I do think that's possible. I do think it's possible. My, I mean, my, I like you share pretty mixed feelings on AI and some level of at times of fear related to it, mostly in its misuse, um, mostly in terms of the way it can be used, weaponized against humanity. Um, uh, what interests me more about AI is not so much using AI as a critical thinking source to solve climate problems, but letting it do the work that so that hu the human creative capacity can be spent on solving climate problems. So what can be automated? What can be, what is AI really good at doing? What, how can ChatGPT be used to, to, to really save time and so that I can spend most of my time using empathy and creativity to solve climate? That is what kind of my favorite use of, of, of AI is. I, in terms of AI as a particular problem solver or in a creative component, I don't know. I tend to be less interested in it. I imagine it's possible, but I feel like what we do know about it and what we do know what it's good for are the rote, non-empathy-based tasks that humans don't have to spend our time doing. Robots are fine to do. And so we can focus elsewhere. And I guess that's my kind of my greatest area of interest for it. Yeah, no, I agree. I also think so. I also, that's why I think like um, using it for data analysis, like large scale data analysis is where it could be really interesting, um, you know, to, to train it on a large corpus of climate data and say, hey, find patterns. Find patterns in here. That that's what that's what machines are really good at, right? Is finding patterns. Find find something odd in here that something that doesn't fit, something that doesn't, you know, what this thing doesn't look like the other. Pull those little bits out of this massive data set that, you know, will take years if if humans need to do it. Um I think I think there, there is potentially some interesting things, some interesting uses for AI. And then from that perspective, we can use the human creative creativity to, to try and find solutions. But again, also, maybe some of it is that um, culture change. You know, if you know more, you can do better, potentially. So if it can be used to get that data, that information that we don't know yet, um, maybe it can help us then talk about this from a more informed place, which then could potentially change the culture. Totally. I, I think the, the, the part of that is, I think the access to the information piece honestly has never been a problem, at least you know, recently, just, just, just with our act, just, just, just with digital access. Like, I think what often we miss is the motivation to, to understand the, the actual, like, willingness to be uncomfortable enough, long enough to consider different perspectives. I mean, if I don't think AI can't make people be curious, you know what I mean? It can't make you be motivated. You know, it doesn't necessarily, you can have all of the access to the world and, and not be interested in any of it. You know, and I think that's the part that the problem that it does not solve. Um, just because, you know, you're a high school student and you use AI to write your report doesn't mean you really understood the content. And you have to be interested and engaged with it as a human learner. And what does that really require? What are those things? I need to interact with it in my body. I need to teach it to others. I need to be in spaces. I need to, you know, 
that's the part that AI doesn't do. And so that is what I'd like for us to be focusing on. You know, what are the specifically human elements that we need to be doing and what can we let AI do for us that don't require that? Um, I'd like to see a better line drawn, better divisions made in terms of that, and not see so much wasted human potential of people who have so much creativity and possibility on things that they don't need to be doing. Because we, we want their focus elsewhere. To cycle back to something else, boredom. Uh, you wrote about reconsidering boredom on your blog. And um, that's a very interesting topic. I find it especially interesting because I also read about that a little bit. Um, Manoush Zamarodi, she hosted this uh, podcast called, uh, what was it called? Note to Self. And they had this, like, a couple of weeks, they did this experiment that led to the book she wrote called Bored and Brilliant. And there's quite a lot of, like, scientific understanding around the fact that sometimes we need to be bored to really get good ideas. And I find that oftentimes when, um, like, in the later, later part of the day, like in the early afternoon, if I take a break and I just go sit somewhere for 10, 15 minutes and I just put on some podcast that's not super uh it doesn't invest a lot of my energy but it's there in the background and my mind starts wondering a little bit i often find that a whole bunch of ideas starts popping up from from that space and that space where it's you're almost bored so i'm kind of curious what what are your thoughts around boredom what have you thought and what are you reconsidering about boredom yeah I, I love this, I love this topic. So yeah, I've done my own kind of experiments on myself with this, and I think for a long time, you know, boredom, you know, in, in my in my non-adult the, the non-adult version of Anna, which is so ceased to exist, I'm proud to admit, people would have thought, oh, this is to be avoided at all costs. This is a problem. Something is wrong. You know, let's let's fix it. Um, and I think now in, in this new kind of more realized version of myself. I would be craving, it's the image that comes to mind, and I think a lot of this is like if you have a gigantic tub of water and you, every so often the tub completely drains out and just all the water comes down, or if you're cooking and you deglaze a pan and you have all the delicious things, the vegetables you were cooking, and eventually you cook it down to the essence of it and that delicious, really, that's, that's what you want to eat is the condensed cooked down version that's left at the end. And that's to me what a bored afternoon is. It's the draining out of the water. It's the cooking down of the pan that you're left with. What are the creative observations that you noticed randomly? What did you just finally remember about your dreams last night? I think oftentimes having a certain level of distraction, I find this with knitting a lot. If I'm just barely engaged enough that I'm not thinking, I, I'm doing there's something going on. I think there's there's, you know, cognitive science like showing this, I believe, that if you're just distracted enough, that you can, it actually frees you up for certain kinds of creative thinking. Um, so if I'm knitting, I get a huge amount of flashes of ideas then. Um, it's like the right combination of engagement. So reconsidering boredom means valuing the, the leftover bits. The parts that are still stuck on the pan, you know, the, the, the delicious end, end result of cooking, you know, that that is valuable and, and, and being willing to be uncomfortable long enough to get to that stage. 
you're sitting on sitting on the stove long enough that you get to that deliciousness. I think that's my favorite thing to do. I read about this in the blog is I like I have I live uh, on the third floor of a building and I go go up to the roof and I have this hammock and I usually I don't bring my phone and I lie in the hammock and I usually bring my knitting and I bring my notebook. And I can feel the water draining out of my brain. It's, there's not much going on. I'm just there, you know, hanging out. In that process, things start to sort of like, you know, you see all the things that have been stuck to the side of the container, you know, all the little creatures and wildlife that are inside the container. So it's like, but only until you drain it out can you access that. That's hard to, you know, if I'm just with a full brain walking around all the time with stuff happening, it's hard, it's hard to dig in. You can't see the sea life if, if you're always above the water, you know, you get in there. So I think for me, that's my, and I find that the more I do that, the more creative I get. Like, I also think what complements, at least for me really nicely, is a really like, like two of my favorite books on creativity. I just finished The Creative Act by Rick Rubin, which is fabulous. Um, and I find it a combination of reading that book or like one of my favorite books on writing, writing down the bones. I will have, I'll have, I'll, it's almost like seizures of creativity. Like they, they come, it's like zing, zing in. And, and, and there's, and there's no phone in sight. It's just me up there with the book and the, and the notebook. Um, and I think sitting for long enough and people who meditate, you know, overcome that discomfort. It's a similar practice. I'm just going to stay in this space for long enough. That I'm going to allow it to even be possible. Um, I think that's one of the first things people have to overcome. The other thing that's really wonderful for creativity and is, is obviously we know walking, you know, we're some of the most creative versions of ourselves when walking and in movement early different times. So my best ideas often come after I've had a really good dance party, you know, um, and things just seem to sort of be kind of shaken loose or <laughs> floating around, you know, like you've knocked them off. Yeah. I don't know. So, uh-huh. But yeah, but I think the boredom piece, yeah, it's it, it, it's also, I think I often find that if I'm bored and I'm, I keep looking at my phone, I'm probably looking for something I shouldn't be like validation. So mm-hmm. I, I don't, which I don't really need and, and just turn off my phone and, and enjoy my own company yeah. alone. Mm. Mm. yeah i know a lot of people find that really hard um and i think it's just because we live in such a constantly stimulating noisy world that when everything goes silent and it's just you and you a lot of people don't know what to do with that but but it is important for us to be able to do that um i think for, for many many reasons uh but we can start small, you know, people often jump to the big, like I have to meditate for 40 minutes. Like, no, do five minutes. That's, that's good enough to start with. Uh, there's this, um, <clears throat> I don't know if you'll call It's technically a podcast, but it's more like just a little thing. It's called um, first. This is what it's called. And it's, it's like these like little seven or maybe 10 minute uh, things. The idea is before you do anything, when you wake up in the morning is first this, just a little five, seven minutes that you just spend not thinking about anything, just being just, and maybe they'll have one small little message in there for you um, at the, at the right at the tail end, tail end of that. I find that really good to start your day that way. Um, Anna, this was a really good conversation. Uh, there's so much more we, we can talk about, but 
yeah um we have to end it at some point <laughs> so uh, as you were talking i was i was kind of thinking of a question that i didn't send you but these things happen and it's if you think about your life before peru and your life in peru now what have you gained and what have you lost that's a great, that's a great question well, I think I gained something that I, I think maybe a lot of us crave, which is the sense of other, right? The sort of mythic, mystic other thing, that, this thing that you wanted. And all of us who have something we want to, we want to do in our lives. I want to, I want to, so many of us are like, I want to create a business or I want to have this kind of experience. Some people want to live in other places and have that. Let's see what that, that's like. You gain the, the sense of having done something that was important to you. And that grabbing that other, and and that's something I have totally gained. And I wish for every human on the planet. I wish everybody in this world could reach out and grab the other, would have the ability and the resources and the safety and the freedom to be able to do that. And that is what I wish I have for everybody. It's like a, a blessing I want to constantly give to everyone on the planet as I kind of, you know, choose my attitude, right? And so, one thing I've lost is. Um, much of an interest in social media. I, I honestly never really had it. I've never been a huge fan of it. And I've found it to be really a huge, a lot of it and in, with, a, with a couple of specific targeted uses, particularly unhelpful. So I have completely lost a connection to this particular social trend online among people I grew up in the States. I have no idea like what um, people are up to with that. And, and, I'm, and I'm sort of intentionally disconnected, not because I don't care about them, but because I don't, that's not my preferred way of knowing about things. Um, I would also say I've lost certain elements culturally of the US, which have to do a lot with kind of comparative consumerism. I'm not sure I ever fully, totally had them, but culturally, when you live somewhere, you can't help but adopt certain things. And I think some of those have kind of gotten shed, like in a bit of a type of skin I've shed, you know? Um, I think I have lost the sort of some of the political heartbeat of conversations um, that are going on there. And I, I don't, frankly, don't really miss them. I still actively vote and everything, even in city local elections of where I grew up, I still vote in all those things. So I haven't lost that. And I, I think I, being a voter to me is one of my biggest civic responsibilities. But, you know, I've lost some of the, the political speculation need of the, of the U.S. And I find that liberating um, and refreshing. And I find yeah. I, I'm able to redirect my energy in other places. I also have lost some of the consistent ongoing... Like, birthday party attendance with my family um however we seem to be doing pretty we seem, we seem to make up for it but i do miss that and that is a big write-off living in another place mm -hmm. it's interesting that um when i when i posed the question i wanted to um add a little context to the lost part but then mm. i didn't and i'm glad i didn't because <laughs> it's interesting that for the most part the things you lost wasn't in a negative uh, view from a negative viewpoint um, because I could have easily have guided you in in that direction. And I'm glad I didn't because it's interesting that um, everything except for the very, very last bit 
um, was actually positive, both things you've gained and lost. They were actually positive things, which is which is interesting. Yeah, I think I think losing I think losing is actually underestimated. I mean, there's a lot of losing that's awful, right? But like a lot of losing, I think we can stand to do. So yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We yeah. carry a lot. We carry a lot around around with us that we we really don't need to. Thanks so much, Anna. This is a wonderful conversation. I can't wait to share this with everybody who listens to this. Um, and it was really nice to learn more about you and and what makes you tick, what makes you get up in the morning. So thanks so much for taking time out of your day to to, to speak with me. I really appreciate it. Thanks for creating such an amazing platform to share these kinds of things. That's really amazing too. Thank you for listening to the Mechanical Inc. podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, share it with your friends. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Have something to add? Continue the conversation on GitHub and join the community on Slack. Until the next one, keep all the things open.